Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Welcome, everyone, to the Future Tech Podcast. My name is Josh Thomas, and I'm here with Joe Ticolo of BitAML and Amber Scott of Outlier. Hello, people. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hey, nice to have you here. And uh, so it's, it's interesting. It's kind of a unique podcast. We're bringing two different people from two different companies and two different countries, I just learned. Uh, to talk about uh, sort of a, a similar topic. Uh, you, both of your companies focus on AML compliance uh, in the crypto space. And for those of you who aren't familiar, AML is anti-money laundering. Uh, coupling that with know your customer or KYC are, are some of the basic requirements that uh, are, are being enforced by most of the regulatory authorities uh, in the crypto space right now. And so it's it's interesting. So Amber is in Canada and Joe is in the U.S. And uh, you you have you guys cover some similar ground. Uh, Joe, could you just kind of start here and and talk to us about the development of you know AML KYC all this stuff over the last couple of years in the crypto space? Sure, sure. So uh, we've been in the crypto space for for almost three years now with BitAML. So. Um, we've seen a, a little bit of a change uh, in that period of time, maybe not as, as rapid of a change as we would like in terms of regulatory clarity on certain things, but be that as it may, um, a lot of folks will, here will remember uh, that FinCEN was the first point of regulatory contact uh, for the cryptocurrency industry. Um, they issued guidance uh, uh, some time ago, um, as a matter of fact, as it pertains to money transmission. Um, you know, So they had said that anyone providing exchange services uh, is considered a money transmitter, and among other things, would have to register with FinCEN, which is a bureau of the U.S. Treasury, uh, obtain or inquire about their status in terms of state licensing on a state-by-state basis, and then uh, have in place a written AML compliance program, uh, which is a core service that we offer at BitAML. So um, within that period of time, we haven't really seen too much more uh, in the way of direct action from the federal level uh, as it pertains to FinCEN and, and, and money transmission status. Uh, what's interesting to note is the states uh, and how they've uh, either held a sort of no action position, as we clarify the uh, sort of gray area about the states as a no action position, and then some of the states have a, sort of evolved their position uh, over that time. So it's been interesting that's much more of a localized uh, at the state level um, in, in terms of, of regulatory compliance application. Uh, but I, I think that in, in the time that we've been here uh, for three years in the space, uh, we've noticed more and more that uh, the folks that are involved uh, in the crypto space are, are much more informed about 
uh, their AML compliance obligations. And, and that's certainly refreshing to see. And I hope that that's not a fact that's lost on our partners in the regulatory space as well. Okay. So, Amber, can you tell us uh, what AML compliance is, is for? What are what are we trying to protect with all of these extra regulations? Sure. Um, and I, I wanted to just, before I do that, if I could hop in and just differentiate a little bit in terms of the Canadian context. Um, because in the U.S., what you had is the application of existing law, where FinCEN had said, yes, the existing money transmitter laws apply to um, the, the purchase and sale of digital currency. We had a very different take that we took in Canada. Um, and, and perhaps that's uh, in part because uh, Andreas Antonopoulos was generous enough to come up and speak to the Canadian Senate Committee on Trade, Banking and Finance way back in 2014. And one of his recommendations was that we do not regulate um, right away or at least wait and take a more wait and see approach. So our government actually drew the conclusion that the existing regulations do not apply. So where we see compliance in Canada um, we see compliance primarily on either a voluntary basis um, or because our banks and payment processors will act as de facto regulators. So in that case, uh, a traditional bank or a payment processor might say to a Bitcoin exchange or brokerage that in order to do business with our bank, you must have a compliance program in place. And in those cases, they take the tack that it will generally be similar to a money service business compliance program. Interesting. Um, so in, Ca in Canada, the regulations are uh, optional? Um, so there, there are no regulations as yet that apply to as far as anti-money laundering. Okay, got it. Okay, that's, so thank you for differentiating that. I wasn't, I wasn't aware. Uh, and so it, it's possible that some sort of regulation could come down the line. It just hasn't yet. And there are, there are banks and companies and exchanges that are voluntarily complying in order to do business. Absolutely. Um, and we expect that we will probably see draft regulations at some point, possibly even this year, but we haven't okay. seen them yet. And so, yeah, so good. So back to the original question. Now, uh, for for our audience, you know, we, we, see, we see all these letters flying around, KYC, AML. Um, and, you know, a lot of people don't really know what it means. And they just, you know, okay, I have to submit a, a photo of my holding my driver's license and a picture saying this is only for Poloniacs or whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. Why do we do that? What are we protecting ourselves from with that? There, there are a few different things there. So when we're talking about anti-money laundering, the core of that issue is that there are people that are doing criminal things, um, for instance, human trafficking, illegal arms trafficking, things like that. Those things are generating profits. And if I'm getting paid uh, because I'm kidnapping and selling people, I probably don't want the payments that I'm getting associated with my name. Um, so I want to be able to transfer those funds as anonymously as possible. I want to be able to move them around. I want to make it difficult to track. There's, there's not a sick code for that in the IRS uh, tax code. You know, what's your profession, <laughs> kidnapper? You can't there's not. There. No? Okay. No. Okay, so, so then, uh, and, and I'm glad that you're explaining this because it's, it's kind of a foreign concept to a lot of us, money laundering. I mean, like, what do I take my money and put it in the washing machine? Well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> what it is, is exactly what you described. You're doing nefarious things and making a profit, uh, and you're, you're putting that money somewhere else to obscure the source so that when people ask about it, you can say, oh, I got it from this other place. 
I mean, in a nutshell, that's what money laundering is. That's exactly it. It's taking that dirty money and trying to make it look clean, um, making it look legitimate, um, or at the very least, making it more difficult for law enforcement to follow the trail. So, uh, Joe, let me bring you back in here. Uh, many years ago, um, there was this thing called Silk Road, and uh, that was the, uh, the de facto king of money laundering at the time, I believe. You could buy almost anything on there, no matter how illegal it was. Uh, and a lot of people were using crypto to do it. That was pretty much the only way you could transact business. Could you could you kind of like go take us back to that time and talk about you know the rise and fall of of the Silk Road and and how that impacted money laundering uh, regulation? Sure, I, I think that's that Silk Road had a profound effect on crypto industry and compliance in, in so many different ways, and and probably beyond the scope of this this uh, opportunity to, to speak with you and your audience today. But uh, I'll do my best. Um, so Silk Road, for those that, that may be unfamiliar, uh, was this online marketplace uh, that sold products and services, many of which, uh, if not most, <laughs> were illegal um, and, and centered around uh, illicit drugs and other activities. Um, it, it just so happened that they used Bitcoin uh, as a payment rail. Um, and the reason they used Bitcoin uh, was for its utility. Uh, oddly enough, um, <laughs> Bitcoin presented the opportunity for instant payment. Uh, it could be done online. Uh, and at the time, uh, many people believed it to be completely anonymous, um, which in time we've sort of dispelled that myth that it's in fact pseudo-anonymous. Um, so here you have a, a gateway for uh, instantaneous uh, transactions uh, that could be done in such a manner that many people believe they're anonymous. So that could lend itself as a great utility for many different uh, commerce, online and otherwise, and, and illegal uh, and otherwise. Um, and so what happened uh, because it was so early in the in the era, era of crypto and a digital currency and of Bitcoin, Bitcoin and Silk Road uh, became intertwined uh, in media and in ways in which people viewed uh, that particular industry. Um, and the timing was terrible as well because we started to have regulatory interest uh, in the space. So as regulators started to, you know, sort of come out of their shell and say, hey, what's this Bitcoin thing all about? You know, let's take a look at it. Um, the lead anytime they went to do an online search or you know asked individuals uh, within their circles about bitcoin and cryptocurrency inevitably silk road uh, was tied into that so uh, it didn't really as an industry put us off uh, on a good footing um, and it's interesting to know kind of looking back on silk road and its impact on the crypto space from a non-compliance standpoint that many folks including myself feel that bitcoin would not be where it is today in terms of funds moving around and liquidity were it not for Silk Road. So in some perverse way, this illegal on, online marketplace um, actually helped propel uh, Bitcoin not only into the spotlight, for good or for ill, but also uh, jump-started uh, this, uh, this cryptocurrency uh, and, and highlighted its use uh, as an instantaneous method of, of transacting pay. You know, as a, uh, as a Hollywood agent, I uh, would gladly tell you there's no such thing as bad publicity. Nope. Um, I, Ross, no might dis, Ross, Ross, Ross might disagree with that, but um, you know, I, <laughs> well, I think it, as generally far as, speaking, as far as Bitcoin goes, you know, I mean, at least it got it into the limelight. But yeah, yeah, I, I would say that Ross got, uh, is is not in agreement there with us. So Ross Ulbrich was the the founder of Silk Road. Uh, in fact, if anybody's interested, uh, if you're listening to this, uh, Ross's mother Lynn is going to be at our conference speaking. Um, so controversial topic for uh, for sure, but uh, definitely definitely an interesting one. And so, uh, Joe and Amber, um, take us back to uh, as you're you're building your own company. Here, uh, what is the mission 
uh, BitAML. What is the mission of Outlier? How can we uh, how can we help uh, get more companies in compliance and help them understand and educate them on why that's important? Um, I I think for us you hit the nail right on the head. It's a lot about education. It's about getting good information in the right hands, um, keeping companies out of trouble. Um, certainly helping people to understand those boundaries as they begin to innovate. Um, and I think that innovation is great. I think that risk-taking is great. Uh, but you have to understand the context of the risk that you're taking. And one of the biggest challenges that we face is that cross-jurisdictional challenge. So we're located in Canada and we'll often deal with the question of, well, we'd like to also do business in the U.S., and what does that look like? Um, and how is that different from doing business in Canada? And this comes into play in a number of different contexts. One of the ones that I think that comes up recently that's, um, that's been pretty prominent is with companies that are launching new coins um, that aren't necessarily doing business in the U.S. because, as, as we see it, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the States is essentially um, the old school Wu-Tang of regulators in that they're really no nothing to mess with. Um, they've taken a much more aggressive approach than other regulators. And part of it is helping companies to get good information in their hands to understand that context, um, to take educated risks and to do the things they need to do to get in compliance and stay in compliance. Okay. And, and so that's, that's uh, certainly a topic that's going to come to a head in 2018 uh, from my perspective. Uh, is there is a vast amount of ICOs. Maybe it slowed down a little bit this month, but uh, there are more and more every day, and it's picking up steam. And uh, you're starting to see some of them that are going through the expensive and lengthy and difficult process of getting approved by U.S. regulators. And then you're starting to see others that are just retreating further and further into the shadow. Uh, and so it's kind of like drawing a big line in the sand. Can you can you speak to either one of you? Can you speak to what's going to happen? Ultimately, there it's it's getting harder to create an ICO because the regulations the regulations are coming down in every you know almost every country now. Can you speak to how that's going to change the landscape of the ICOs in 2018? Sure. Um, we're already starting to see it change the landscape, and, and uh, this began, I would say, late last year as the SEC became, uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, that is, became much more vocal, um, both in terms of, of administrative rulings and, and uh, press releases and other media uh, touch points with the industry, uh, became much more aggressive in their language and, and uh, much more assertive in the process. And we've actually seen, uh, at least here at BitAML, uh, less volume in terms of inquiries from prospective uh, and existing ICOs. Um, and in fact, uh, it's come to our attention that many uh, ICOs, uh, either those going to market or those proposing to go to market, um, were not uh, expecting to meet their benchmarks uh, in terms of the amount of capital they've raised uh, or having trouble uh, reaching some of those benchmarks. And uh, I think a lot of the regulatory attention on the space really got some folks thinking, um, is this A, a place I want to be? Uh, and then B, can I actually uh, make a go of it? Is it worth that opportunity? Um, and I think that as there's a lot more attention on that, there's sort of a risk uh, analysis, uh, if you will, sort of a back-of-the-envelope risk analysis being conducted by some folks that were interested in the space um, and some, some talent, unfortunately, 
decided to move on to other areas of the crypto market. Um, and I think it's already had that sort of chilling effect. Um, and, and we've also seen many cases where those that initially uh, were enthusiastic went to market with their ICO, but ultimately decided um, in the best interest of, among other things, consumer protection, uh, and maybe we could argue self-preservation, decided to return those funds uh, and, and take a step back and, and sort of uh, just you know, distance themselves from that market and from that opportunity. So uh, to answer your question, I think that's going to continue into 2018. I think ICOs are still going to be around, uh, but I think the euphoria and the uh, drive to be a participant in that space is going to diminish. And I think there are other areas of crypto uh, that will benefit uh, from having those awesomely talented individuals uh, move over from ICOs to somewhere else. You know, I was watching a, uh, a time-lapse graph of uh, ICOs and the market cap of, of crypto. I, I, I wouldn't know how to find it again, but it was just like a, it was moving really fast over the last four or five years. And there was, you know, the Bitcoin white paper and then nothing. And, and then, you know, Ethereum came out in 2014 or something like that. And then, and then nothing. And then in 2017, it was just... It just blew up, you know, ICO every minute. So uh, I, and I have sort of a, an, an issue with that one in, in both the description of Bitcoin and the description of Ethereum as ICOs, um, in part because with, the, with either of those projects, and, and I really challenge anyone, uh, please send it to me if you can find it, to find something from 2014 um, Ethereum back in those early days when it was, at, you know, when there wasn't actually um, anything more than some some slide presentations and some concepts. So when it sort of looked in certain regards like ICOs look today, to find something where people were talking about invest. Because my remembrance of that is that everyone at the time was really talking about platforms. They were talking about ideas. They were talking about building things. Um, there wasn't the same level of consideration or um, or chatter at all about price. And certainly, um, I don't recall anyone from the Ethereum project at that time going out and talking about buy this. It's going to be a great investment, where I would say that is the vast majority of the chatter. Today. So it's well, a very okay, different yeah. historical context. Right. Yeah. So uh, yeah. thank you for the, for the color uh, that you've added to this. Uh, but the... So going back to the point, uh, the reason that I was bringing that up is in 2017, the amount of projects, whatever you want to call them, however they were uh, motivated, exploded and created a lot of noise in the industry. And so back to your point here where it says uh, this was a platform that was not about investment, but it was about utility, that changed. It seems like that changed in 2017 or the tail end of 2016, and it's created so much noise that the platforms that do have utility are really struggling to get any attention um, because everywhere you look, I mean, I, I could go and start an ICO tomorrow and not know anything about development and not even have a white paper. I could still do it. You, you uh, could just hire a marketing team to encourage people to throw their money into your dumpster fire, and some probably would. <laughs> Yeah, many have. And so uh, what do you, as, as compliance people, what do you see as a, a remedy to that where we can at least just kind of lower the noise level to where only the legitimate products are standing out? Uh, well, if only we were that easy. Um, <laughs> I think that regulation may be, be. A, a, 
I think yeah, I think regulation may be a piece of that in order to uh, to sort of help you know weed out uh, the good from the bad. But as as you mentioned, sometimes and uh, with the insertion of, of regulations and regulatory interpretations, it can slow the process down and and uh, that cast a wider net um, than may be expected. Um, you know, so uh, it's a little concerning uh, for us to to sort of see that. Um, and, and what do we do in the area of consumer protection? Um, well, our firm, uh, about a year ago, we started advocating um, more aggressively to our clients and to the industry itself that consumer protection was going to be this next touch point uh, in the greater context of, of regulation, that AML and KYC, well, they're not going anywhere at all. They're, they're here to stay, uh, and they are still that, that centerpiece, that center touch point in terms of compliance. We felt that consumer protection uh, was really going to be a strong uh, piece of the puzzle uh, in terms of compliance moving forward, especially as the industry began to scale uh, and began to take on more mainstream clients uh, to the space, or, or as I affectionately refer to them, mom and dad, um, beyond the, the circle that we have now in the space. And we, we began to see that some concern that as more mainstream audiences came on board and as companies scaled, they'd have trouble adapting and we ha might have some consumer protection issues. Um, of course, no way of knowing that ICOs would have taken off like this, but still the message is there uh, that consumer protection uh, is very important. And that begins with something as simple or, or may seem as simple uh, as having some clear disclosures and expectations up front. Um, generally speaking, if your lead is about price and how much money you can make and, and you know what size yacht you'll have after this is done, um, that, that's generally sort of a red flag. Um, and uh, I guess to that po point, a larger observation uh, within the context of, of fraud and, and consumer protection, uh, you know, some of the, the technologies uh, have and will continue to change, but some of the scams and some of the, the workarounds or, you know, some of the ways in which individuals, uh, you know, structure things, uh, those types of things will always be relatively the same. It's just the technology has changed. Um, and so it, it's about information, about education, as Amber said, uh, really reaching out to not only the consumer, but also these businesses and, and these ICOs and folks getting involved in the space to not only be upfront about it, but really to, to level set in terms of expectations so there's no misinterpretation. Um, it's our belief that a lot of consumer complaints to government agencies tend to begin with something as soft as a complaint about a particular service or reaction to something that they said. These little micro, um, micro moments that could have been dealt with uh, by level setting with that particular person up front and or by being more responsive to that in a reactive capacity. Um, so we're encouraging our, our clients, and I'm sure Amber is doing the same thing, to be on top of consumer protection, to really have those those steps in place and to be able to, to fully engage uh, with their customer. And it's, by the way, it just happens to be good business in general, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes if you just, uh, uh, you know, treat people like you would treat your mother or your uncle or your cousin, uh, then, you're going to be okay if you just do it right. And speaking of, I, I hate to give these guys, you know, because, there's, again, there's no such thing as bad publicity. In my research, I was, I was poking around on Bitcoin talk or something, and I, I literally found a program called Moon Lambos, which is about going to the moon and buying your Lamborghini. And like, but that, that, that capitalizes on a particular, a particular feeling, right, a particular sense, yeah. a particular fear of missing out. Um, it yeah. capitalizes on all of these articles you see that say things like, if you had bought $1,000 worth of Bitcoin back in 2010, well, I mean, you did that if you maybe if you were on a particular cypherpunk mailing list that, you know, knew about Bitcoin at that point in time, no one was, 
really investing in it at that point in time. Um, it, it wasn't something that people looked at in the same way. And that's really hard to put in perspective because we see things with the lens of um, almost a, a decade later, we're looking back at it and saying, well, yes, that's the way the mathematics worked out, but it could have worked out very differently. Um, yeah. The other thing that I would say just for consumers in general, so not, not even as a compliance person, but just as a member of the public that consumes goods and services, is that there, that fear of missing out and the way that that's been capitalized upon has led people to make a lot of bad decisions. Um, and yes. I've heard yeah. people say things like they've just um, bought a portfolio of ICOs and they just sort of went online and looked at what, uh, what potential tokens they could buy. Um, bought those tokens with no research. And I talked to someone who did this and said, would you ever have done the same thing with a stock? And they said, well, no, but I would also never expect a stock to, to uh, go up 100%, um, you know, right. 100 times over the course of a year. So in, in a funny way, I think that um, as long as those incentives are there, people are going to take risks only seeing the potential upside to it. Um, yeah, very good. Until Go that upside that. isn't there. Yeah, and, and I would echo I would echo what Amber has said. I think in the historical context of, of Bitcoin and, and later on cryptocurrency, um, we never thought of it early on as this, you know, investment vehicle as this currency even. Um, it was more about and I'm sorry to be nostalgic, it was more about creating this new uh, way of financial services. And over time, uh, the shorthand uh, that began to play out was Bitcoin has a value relative to the U.S. dollar. And so um, when I give presentations and bankers ask me, oh, how much is one Bitcoin worth? I said, well, it's always been one worth worth one Bitcoin. Um, it just so happens that we measure <laughs> our daily lives here in the U.S. in dollar denominations. And so what you're asking me to do is to take what it's worth, one Bitcoin, and apply it to your system of dollars. And so I can I can see the, the, uh, the gears uh, moving uh, at that point. So in some ways, it has become, at least to the general public, more analogous to a stock. Um, and I think not only does that miss the point in the spirit uh, of Satoshi and of, of Bitcoin, um, but it also it also skews our, our thinking about this. And it becomes this sort of, how do I make money because everybody else before me made money? Uh, and what we tell our clients about cryptos is when you talk about when they talk to me and they say, hey, I want to invest in Bitcoin or Ethereum or Litecoin or, or, or some crypto or altcoin. I say, okay, well, well, that's interesting. I'm glad you're interested in, in the space, but I want you to do some research and get to know the utility and the story behind it. And once you can appreciate those factors, then I want you to think about if you want to get involved in the space with a purchase of a crypto or, or trading or something like that. Because I think with that appreciation, then you have the right lens, then you have the right context, and it becomes more about appreciating the space you're in and those involved rather than this sort of, how can I make money as fast as I can because somebody else did so seven years ago. Yeah, I agree good. with that so, completely. That's even one of yeah. our questions when we're looking at startup clients that, uh, that come to us to have work done. Part of my question isn't just what, what does your company do, but what problem are you solving? And if as a startup, you can't answer the question of what problem you're solving, I'm probably not going to work with you. Yeah, wise, wise words for sure. And definitely a, a problem that uh, is, is rampant. I've, I've talked to a lot of those guys myself and, you know, knowing what problem to solve is, you know, kind of question number one for sure. So, I, we, hey guys, we, we're uh, running long here and we need to wrap. Uh, so uh, quickly, Joe, uh, tell me how, how people can learn more about BitAML and who's a good candidate for you. Sure, sure. So um, 
who's a good candidate for us? We love helping people out in the crypto space. Um, even if you're if you're at the early stages where you're doing research, um, there's no need to apologize for what stage you are at currently. Um, just uh, find us online at bitaml, B-I-T-A-M-L dot com. Or if you want to just talk to me directly, I always love to get email from folks, uh, questions big or small. Uh, so you can hit me up at joe, J-O-E, at bitaml, B-I-T-A-M-L dot com. Uh, and we're also on social media, so if you want to see the latest and greatest of what's going on in the regulatory uh, space as it pertains to crypto, uh, definitely check us out on Twitter, LinkedIn, and and uh, and Facebook. Uh, we're delighted to, to share our knowledge with the space and, of course, answer any questions you might have. Very well. And Amber, tell us, uh, for our Canadian counterparts, tell us about Outlier. Perfect. So we're online at outliercanada.com, O-U-T-L-I-E-R, Canada.com. Uh, um, at Outlier Canada is also my Twitter handle. Um, if you'd like to get a hold of us, send us an email at info at outliercanada.com. Very good. So Joe Chicolo from bitaml.com and Amber Scott from outliercanada.com. Thanks very much for joining us and uh, discussing this crucial yet often overlooked topic. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. All right. That'll do it for this episode. We'll see you next time on the Future Tech Podcast. The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.